Section 14 of The Golden Bough Part 1 The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings Volume 1 by James Fraser This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 6 Part 2 Thus in Africa, kings have probably often been developed out of magicians and especially out of rainmakers. The foregoing evidence renders it probable that in Africa the king has often been developed out of the public magician, and especially out of the rainmaker. The unbounded fear which the magician inspires and the wealth which he amasses in the exercise of his profession may both be supposed to have contributed to his promotion. But if the career of a magician, and especially of a rainmaker, offers great rewards to the unsuccessful practitioner of the art, it is beset with many pitfalls into which the unskilled or unlucky artist may fall. The position of the public sorcerer is indeed a very precarious one, for where the people firmly believe that he has it in his power to make the rain to fall, the sun to shine, and the fruits of the earth to grow, they naturally impute drought and dearth to his culpable negligence or willful obstinacy, and they punish him accordingly. We have seen that in Africa the chief who fails to procure rain is often exiled or killed. Examples such punishments could be multiplied. Kings in Africa punished for drought and dearth. Thus in some parts of West Africa, when prayers and offerings presented the king and failed to procure rain, his subjects bind him with ropes and take him by force to the grave of his forefathers, that he may obtain from them the needed rain. The Banjais in West Africa ascribe to their king the power of causing rain or fine weather. So long as the weather is fine, they load him with presents of grain and cattle, but if long drought or rain threatens to spoil the crops, they insult and beat him till the weather changes. When the harvest fails, or the surf the coast is too heavy to allow of fishing. The people of Lango accuse the king of a bad heart and depose him. On the grain coast the high priest of fetish king who bears the title of Bolio is represented for the health of the community, the fertility of the earth and the abundance of fish in the sea and rivers. And if the country suffers in any of these respects, the Bolio is deposed from his office. In Usukuma, a great district on the southern bank of the Victoria Nyanza, the rain and locust question is part and parcel of the Sultan's government. He too must know how to make rain and drive away the locusts. If he and his medicine men are unable to accomplish this, his whole existence is at stake in times of distress. On a certain occasion when the rain so greatly desired by the people did not come, the Sultan was simply driven out in a tatwa near Nasa. The people in fact hold that rulers must have power over nature and her phenomena. Again, we are told of the natives of the Nyanza region generally that they are persuaded that rain only falls as a result of magic, and the important duty of causing it to descend devolves on the chief of the tribe. If rain does not come at the proper time, everybody complains. More than one petty king has been banished to his country because of drought. Similarly, among the Antimores of Madagascar, the chiefs are held responsible for the operation of the laws of nature. Hence, if the land is smitten with a blight or devastated by clouds of locusts, if the cows yield little milk or fatal epidemics rage among the people, the chief is not only deposed but stripped of his property and banished, because they say that under a good chief such things ought not to happen. So too, if the Antimorona, we read that although the chiefs of this tribe are chosen by the people, during their tenure of power they enjoy a respect which borders on an adoration. But if a crop of rice fails or any other calamity happens, they are immediately deposed, sometimes even killed and yet their successor is always chosen from the family. 
among the latukas of the upper nile when the crops are withering in the fields and all the efforts of the chief to bring down rain have proved fruitless let people calmly attack him by night rob him of all he possesses and drive him away but often they kill him in other parts of the world kings have been punished for failing to regulate the course of nature in many other parts of the world kings have been expected to regulate the course of nature for the good of their people and have been punished if they failed to do so it appears that the scythians when food was scarce used to put their kings in bonds in ancient egypt the sacred kings were blamed for the failure of the crops but the sacred beasts were also held responsible for the course of nature when pestilence and other calamities had fallen on the land in consequence of a long and severe drought the priests took the animals by night and threatened them if the evil did not abate they slew the beasts on the coral island of nu or a savage island in the south pacific there formerly reigned a line of kings but as the kings were also high priests and were supposed to make the food grow the people became angry with them in times of scarcity and killed them till at last as one after another was killed no one would be king and the monarchy came to an end ancient chinese writers inform us that in korea the blame was laid on the king whenever too much or too little rain fell and the crops did not ripen some said that he must be deposed others that he must be slain the chinese emperor himself is deemed responsible if the drought is at all severe and many are the self-condemnatory edicts on the subject published in the pages of the venerable peking gazette in extreme cases the emperor clad in humble vestments sacrifices to heaven and implores its protection so too the kings of tonkin used to take blame to themselves when the country was visited by such calamities as scanty harvests death food destructive hurricanes and cholera on these occasions a monarch would sometimes publicly confess his guilt and impose on himself a penance as a means of appeasing the wrath of heaven in former days it sometimes happened that when the country suffered from drought and dearth the king of tonkin was obliged to change his name in the hope that this would turn the weather to rain but if the drought continued even after the change of name the people would sometimes resort to stronger measures and transfer the title of king from the legitimate monarch to his brother son or other near relation power of medicine men among the north american indians among the american indians the furthest advance towards civilization was made under the monarchical and theocratic governments of mexico and peru but we know too little of the early history of these countries to say whether the predecessors of the deified kings were medicine men or not perhaps a trace of such a succession may be detected in the oath which the mexican kings took when they mounted the throne they swore that they would make the sun to shine clouds to give rain rivers to flow and the earth to bring forth fruits in abundance certainly in aboriginal america the sorcerer of the medicine man surrounded by a halo of mystery and an atmosphere of awe was a personage of great influence and importance and he may well have developed into a chief or king in many tribes though positive evidence of such a development appears to be lacking thus catlin tells us that in north america the medicine men are valued as dignitaries in the tribe and the greatest respect is paid to them by the whole community not only for their skill in their materia medica but more especially for their tact in magic and mysteries in which they all deal to a very great extent in all tribes their doctors are conjurers are magicians are soothsayers and i like to have said high priests inasmuch as they superintend to conduct all their religious ceremonies they are looked upon by all as oracles of the nation in all councils of war and peace they have a seat with the chiefs are regularly consulted before any public step is taken and the greatest deference and respect is paid to their opinions among the lukuks of north west america each band is headed by a chief and one or more medicine men 
the latter however do not possess any secular power as chiefs but they acquire an authority of shamanism to which even the chiefs themselves are subject the luchuks are very superstitious and place implicit faith in the pretended incantations of their medicine men for whom they entertain great fear the power of the medicine men is very great and they use every means they can to increase it by working on the fears and credulity of the people their influence exceeds even that of the chiefs the power of the latter consists in the quantity of beads they possess their wealth and the means that affords them to work ill to those to whom they may be ill disposed while the power of the medicine man consists in the harm they believe he is able to do by shamanism should they happen to displease him in any way it is when sickness prevails and the conjurer rules supreme it is then that he fills his bead bags and increases his riches amongst the tenor indians of the same region the social standing of the medicine man is on the whole a desirable one but it has also its drawbacks and its dark side the medicine man is decidedly influential among his fellow savages he is consulted and listened to on account of the superior knowledge imparted to him by the spirits he is feared on account of his power to do evil is to cause the death of a person to ruin his undertakings to render him unsuccessful in the hunt by driving away the game from his path and cause the loss of his property of his strength of his health of his faculties etc the medicine man is rich because his services when summoned or even when accepted though uncalled for are generously remunerated he is respected on account of his continual intercourse with the supernatural world his words when said in a peculiar low tone with a momentary glow in the eyes which he seems able to control at will when uttered during his sleep real faint are taken as oracles as the very words of the spirit in short of these tribes who have no chiefs no religion no medical knowledge he is the nearest approach to a chief a priest and a physician similarly in california the shaman was and still is perhaps the most important individual among the maidu in the absence of any definite system of government the word of a shaman is great weight as a class they regard with much awe as a rule are obeyed much more than the chief power of medicine men among north north american indians as leader of the local branch of a secret society the most noted maidu shaman of each district was supposed to make rain when it was needed to ensure a good crop of edible acorns and a plentiful supply of salmon and to drive away evil spirits disease and epidemics from the village further was his business to inflict disease and death on hostile villages which he did by burning certain roots and blowing the smoke towards the doomed village while he said over there over there not here to the other place do not come back this way we are good make those people sick kill them they are bad people among the yokuts another tribe of californian indians the rainmakers exercised great influence one of them by his insulating address eloquence and jugglery spread his fame at a distance of two hundred miles and accordingly availed himself of two years of drought to levy contributions far and wide from the trembling indians who attributed to his magic the fall of the rain in the same tribe the wizards threw large profits from the rattlesnake dance which they danced every spring capering about rattlesnakes twined round their arms for after this exhibition many simpletons paid them for complete immunity from snake bites which the wizards were believed able to grant for a year power of medicine men among the south american indians in south america also the magicians or medicine men seem to have been on the high road to chieftainship or kingship one of the earliest settlers on the coast of brazil the frenchman Bebet, reports that the indians hold these pegas or medicine men in such honour 
and reverence that they adore or rather idolize them you may see the common folk go to meet them prostrate themselves and pray to them saying grant that i be not ill that i do not die neither i nor my children or some such request and he answers you shall not die you shall not be ill and such like replies but sometimes if it happens that these beggars do not tell the truth and things turn out otherwise than they predicted the people make no scruple of killing them as unworthy of the title and dignity of pagas the indians of brazil say a modern writer who knew them well have no priests but only magicians who at the same time use medical help and exorcism in order to exert influence over the superstition and the dread of spirits felt by the rude multitude we may perfectly compare them with the shamans of the northeastern asiatic peoples but like the shamans they are not mere magicians fetish men soothsayers interpreters of dreams visionaries and casters out of devils their activity has also a political character in so far as they influence the decisions of the leaders and of the community in public business and exert a certain authority more than anybody else as judges sureties and witnesses in private affairs among the lengua indians of the grand chuckle every clan has its cazique or chief but he possesses little authority in virtue of his office he has to make many presents so he seldom grows rich and is generally more shabbily clad than any of his subjects as a matter of fact the magician is the man who has most power in his hands and he is accustomed to receive presents instead of to give them it is the magician's duty to bring down misfortune and plagues on the enemies of his tribe and to guard his own people against hostile magic for these services he is well paid and by them he acquires a position of great influence and authority among the indians of guana also the magician or medicine man paye bayman is a personage of great importance by his magic art he alone it is believed can counteract the machinations of the great host of evil spirits to which these savages attribute all the ills of life it is almost impossible we are told to overestimate the dreadful sense of the constant and unavoidable danger in which the indian would live were it not for his trust and the protecting power of the magician every village has one such spiritual guardian who is physician priest and magician in one his influence is immense no indian dare refuse him anything he takes a fancy to from a trifle of food up to a man's wife hence these cunning fellows live in idleness on the fat of the land and acquire a large harem their houses are commonly full of women who serve them in the capacity of beasts of burden as well as of wives plodding wearily along under the weight of the baggage or long journeys while their lord and master fantastically tricked out in feathers and paint strolls ahead burdened only with his magic rattle and perhaps his bow and arrows power of medicine men among the pagan tribes of the malay peninsula among the wild pagan tribes of the malay peninsula the connection between the officers of magician and chief is very close indeed the two officers are often united in the same person among these savages as among the malays the accredited intermediary between gods and men is in all cases the medicine man or sorcerer in the samang tribes the office of chief medicine man appears to be generally combined with that of chief but amongst the sakai and chakan these offices are sometimes separated and although the chief is almost invariably a medicine man of some repute he is not necessarily the chief medicine man any more than the chief medicine man is necessarily the minister of head of the tribe in both cases there is an unfailing supply of aspirants to the office though it may be taken for granted that all else being equal a successful medicine man would have much the best prospect of being elected chief that in the vast majority of cases his priestly duties form an important part of a chief's work the medicine man is as might be expected duly credited with supernatural powers 
His tasks are to preside as chief medium at all the ceremonies, to instruct the youth of the tribe, to ward off as well as to heal all forms of sickness and trouble, to foretell the future as affecting the results of any given act, to avert when necessary the wrath of heaven, and even when re-embodied after death in the shape of a wild beast, to extend a benign protection to his devoted descendants. Among the Sakai and the Jakan, he is provided with a distinctive form of dress and body painting and carries an emblematic wand or staff by virtue of his office. Development of kings out of magicians among the Malays. Throughout the Malay region, the Raja or king is commonly regarded with superstitious veneration as a possessor of supernatural powers, and there are grounds for thinking that he too, like apparently so many African chiefs, has been developed out of a simple magician. At the present day, the Malays firmly believe that the king possesses a personal influence over the works of nature, such as the growth of the crops and the bearing of fruit trees. The same prolific virtue is supposed to reside, though in a lesser degree, in his delegates and even in the persons of Europeans, who chance to have charge of districts. Thus in Selangor, one of the native states of the Malay Peninsula, the successful failure of the rice crops is often attributed to a change of district officers. The Turatiyas of southern Salives hold that the prosperity of the rice depends on the behaviour of their princes, and that bad government, by which they mean a government which does not confirm to ancient custom, will result in a failure of the crops. Belief of the Dayaks and the power of the Raja to fertilise the rice The Dayaks of Sarawak believed that their famous English ruler, Raja Brook, was endowed with a certain magical virtue, which, if properly applied, could render the rice crops abundant. Hence, when he visited a tribe, they used to bring him the seed which they intended to sow next year, and he fertilized it by shaking over it the women's necklaces, which had been previously dipped in a special mixture. And when he entered a village, the women would wash and bathe his feet, first with water, and then with the milk of a young coconut, and lastly with water again. And all this water which had touched his person, they preserved for the purpose of distributing it on their farms, believing that it ensured an abundant harvest tribes which were too far off for him to visit used to send him a small piece of white cloth and a little gold or silver and when these things had been impregnated by his generative virtue they buried them in their fields and confidently expected a heavy crop once a european remarked that the rice crops of the sanban tribe were thin the chief immediately replied that they could not be otherwise since rajah brooke had never visited them and he begged that mr brooke might be induced to visit his tribe and remove the sterility of their land links between Malay, Rajas, and Magicians. Among the Malays, the links which unite the king, or Raja, with the magician happen to be unusually plain and conspicuous. Thus the magician shares with the king the privilege of using cloth dyed yellow, the royal colour. He has considerable political influence, and he can compel people to address him in ceremonial language, of which indeed the phraseology is even more copious in its application to a magician than to a king. Moreover, and this is a fact of great significance, the Malay magician owns certain insignia which are said to be exactly analogous to the regalia of the king. They even bear the very same name, Kebisaran. Now the regalia of the Malay king are not more jewelled, baubles designed to impress the multitude with the pomp and splendour of royalty. They are regarded as wonder-working talismans, the possession of which carries with it the right to the throne. If the king loses them, he thereby forfeits the allegiance of his subjects. 
It seems, therefore, to be a probable inference that in the Malay region the regalia of the kings are only the conjuring apparatus of their predecessors, the magicians, and that in this part of the world, accordingly, the magician is a humble grub or chrysalis, which in due time births and discloses that gorgeous butterfly, the raja or king. In Salives, the regalia are talismans or fetishes, the possession of which carries with it the right to the throne. Nowhere, apparently, in the Indian archipelago is this view of the regalia as the true front of regal dignity carried to such lengths as in southern Salives. Here the royal authority is supposed to be, in some mysterious fashion, embodied in the regalia, while the princes owe all the power they exercise and all the respect they enjoy to their possession of these precious objects. In short, the regalia reign, and the princes are merely their representatives. Hence, whoever happens to possess the regalia is regarded by the people as their lawful king. For example, if a deposed monarch contrives to keep the regalia, his former subjects remain loyal to him in their hearts, and look upon his successor as an usurper who is to be obeyed only in so far as he can exact obedience by force. And on the other hand, in an insurrection, the first aim of the rebels is to seize the regalia, for if they can only make themselves masters of them, the authority of the sovereign is gone. In short, the regalia are here fetishes, which confer a title to the throne and control the fate of the kingdom. Houses are built for them to dwell in, as if they were living creatures. Furniture, weapons, and even lands are assigned to them. Like the Ark of God, they are carried with the army to battle, and on various occasions the people appropriate them, as if they were gods, by prayer and sacrifice, and by smearing them with blood. Some of them serve as instruments of divination, or are brought forth in times of public disaster for the purpose of staying the evil whatever it may be. For example, when plague is rife among men or beasts, or when there is a prospect of death, the Bulganese bring out the regalia, smear them with buffalo's blood, and carry them about. For the most part, these fetishes are heirlooms of which their origin is forgotten. Some of them are said to have fallen from heaven. Popular tradition traces the foundation of the oldest states to the discovery or acquisition of one of these miraculous objects. It may be a stone, a piece of wood, a fruit, a weapon, or what not, of a peculiar shape or colour, Often the original regalia have disappeared in course of time, but their place is taken by the various articles of property which were bestowed on them, and to which the people have transferred their pious allegiance. The oldest dynasties have the most regalia, and the holiest regalia consists of relics of the bodies of former princes, which are kept in golden cassettes wrapped in silk. Regalia as talismans in Salibs At Palapo, the capital of Luwu, a kingdom on the coast of Salibs, Two toy cannons with barrels like thin gas pipes are regalia. Their possession is supposed to render the town impregnable. Other regalia of this kingdom are veiled from vulgar eyes in bark cloth. When a missionary requested to see them, the official replied that it was strictly forbidden to open the bundle. Were he to do so, the earth would yawn and swallow them up. In Boma, the principal part of the regalia or public talismans consists of a sacred brown house, which no man may ride. It is always stabled in the royal palace. When the animal passes, the government fought on high days and holidays is saluted with the fire of five guns when it is led to the river to bathe the royal spear is carried before it and any man who does not give way to the beast or crosses the road in front of it has to pay a fine but the horse is mortal and when it goes the way of all horse flesh another steed chosen from the same stud reigns in its place magical virtue of regalia in egypt and africa but if in the Malay region the regalia are essentially wonder-working talismans or fetishes which the kings appear to have derived from their predecessors, the magicians, we may conjecture that in other parts of the world the emblems of royalty may at some time have been viewed in a similar light and have had a similar origin. In ancient Egypt, the two royal crowns, 
the white and the red, were supposed to be endowed with magical virtues, indeed, to be themselves divinities, embodiments of the sun god. One text declares, the white crown is the eye of Horus, the red crown is the eye of Horus. Another text speaks of a crown as a great magician, and applied to the image of a god, the crown was supposed to confirm the deity in the possession of his soul and of his form. Among the Yorubas of West Africa, at the present time, the king's crown is sacred and is supposed to be the shrine of a spirit which has to be propitiated. When the king, Oni, of Aif, visited Lagos some years ago, he had to sacrifice five sheep to his crown between Abaden and Aif, a two days' journey on foot. Among the Ashantis, the throne or chair of the king or chief is believed to be inhabited by a spirit to which it is consecrated and to which human sacrifices were formerly offered. At present, the victims are sheep. It is the personification of power, hence a king is not a king if a chief is not a chief until he has been solemnly installed on the throne. Among the Hos, an Uwe tribe of the Togoland in German West Africa, the king's proper throne is small and the king does not sit on it. Usually it is bound round with magical cords and wrapped up in a sheep's skin. From time to time it is taken out of the wrappings, washed in a stream and smeared all over with the blood of a sheep which has been sacrificed for the purpose. The flesh of the sheep is boiled, and a portion of it eaten by every man who is being present at the ceremony. Regalia venerated in Cambodia, Scythia, and ancient Greece. In Cambodia, the regalia are regarded as a palladium on which the existence of the kingdom depends. They are committed to Brahmins for safekeeping. In antiquity, the Scythian kings treasured as sacred a plough, a yoke, a battle-axe, and a cup, all of gold, which were said to have fallen from heaven. They offered great sacrifice to these sacred things at an annual festival, and if the man in charge of them fell asleep under the open sky, it was believed that he would die within the year. The scepter of King Agamemnon, or what passed for such, was worshipped as a god at Cheronia. A man acted as priest of the scepter for a year at a time, and sacrifices were offered to it daily. The golden lamb of Mycenae, on the possession of which, according to legend, the two rivals Atreus and Theisistus, based their claim to the throne, may have been a royal talisman of this sort. The belief that kings possess magical or supernatural powers to control the course of nature for the good of their subjects seems to have been shared by the ancestors of all the Aryan races from India to Ireland. The belief that kings possess magical or supernatural powers by virtue of which they can fertilize the earth and confer other benefits on their subjects would seem to have been shared by the ancestors of all the Aryan races from India to Ireland and it has left clear traces of itself in our own country down to modern times. Thus the ancient Hindu or book called The Laws of Manu describes as follows the effects of a good king's reign. In that country where the king avoids taking the property of mortal sinners, men are born in due time and are long-lived, and the crops of the husbandmen spring up, each as it was sown, and the children die not, and no misshapen offspring is born. In Homeric Greece, kings and chiefs were spoken of as sacred or divine, their houses too were divine and their chariots sacred and it was thought that the reign of a good king caused the black earth to bring forth wheat and barley the trees to be loaded with fruit the flocks to multiply and the sea to yield fish a greek historian of a much later age tells us that in the reign of a very bad king of lydia the country suffered from drought for which he would seem to have held a king responsible there is a tradition that once when the land of the adonians in thrace bore no fruit the god dionysus intimated to the people that his fertility could be restored by putting their king Lysurgus to death. So they took him to Mount Pangium, and there caused him to be torn to pieces by horses. When the crops failed, 
the Burgundians used to blame their kings and depose them. Swedish and Danish kings. In the time of the Swedish king Damald, a mighty famine broke out, which lasted several years and could be stayed by the blood neither of beasts nor of men. Therefore, in a great popular assembly held at Sala, the chiefs decided that King Damald himself was the cause of the scarcity and must be sacrificed for good seasons. So they slew him and smeared with his blood the altars of the gods. Again, we are told that the Swedes always attributed good or bad crops to their kings as the cause. Now in the reign of King Olaf, there came dear times and famine, and the people thought that the fault was the king's because he was sparing any sacrifices. So, mustering an army, they marched against him, surrounded his dwelling, and burned him in it, giving him to Odin as a sacrifice for good crops. In the Middle Ages, when Waldemar I, king of Denmark, travelled in Germany, mothers brought their infants and husbandmen their seed for him to lay his hands on, thinking that children would both thrive the better for the royal touch, and for like reason farmers asked him to throw the seed for them. It was the belief of the ancient Irish that when their kings observed the customs of their ancestors, the seasons were mild, the crops plentiful, the cattle fruitful, the waters abounded with fish, and the fruit trees had to be propped up on account of the weight of their produce. A canon attributed to St. Patrick enumerates, among the blessings that attended the reign of a just king, fine weather, calm seas, crops abundant, and trees laden with fruit. On the other hand, dearth, dryness of cows, blight of fruit, and scarcity of corn were regarded as infallible proofs that the reigning king was bad. For example, in the reign of the usurper King Carberry Kincat, evil was the state of Ireland. Fruitless are corn, for there used to be only one grain on the stalk. Fruitless are rivers, milkless are cattle, plentyless are fruit, for there used to be but one acorn on the stalk. Magical virtue attributed to the chiefs of the MacLeods. Superstitions of the same sort seem to have lingered in the highlands of Scotland down to the 18th century. When Dr. Johnson travelled in Skye, it was still held that the return of the laird to Dungveden, after any considerable absence, produced a plentiful capture of herring. The laird of Dunvegan is chief of the clan in MacLeods, and his family still owns a banner which is called MacLeods Fairy Banner, on account of the supernatural powers attributed to it. When it is unfurled, victory and war attends it, and it relieves its followers from imminent danger, but the virtues it can exert only thrice, and already it has been twice unfurled. When the potato crop failed, many of the common people desired that the magical banner should be displayed, apparently in the belief that the merest sight of it would produce a fine crop of potatoes. Every one with a child who sees it is taken with premature labour, and every cow casts her calf. A relic of this belief is the notion that English kings can heal scrofula by their touch. Perhaps the last relic of such superstitions which lingered about our English kings was the notion that they could heal scrofula by their touch. The disease was accordingly known as the king's evil. Queen Elizabeth often exercised his miraculous gift of healing. On Midsummer Day, 1633, Charles I cured a hundred patients at one sweep in the Chapel Royal at Holywood, but it was under his son, Charles II, that the practice seems to have attained its highest vogue. In this respect, the merry monarch did not let the grass grow under his feet. It was the 29th of May, 1660, when he was brought home in triumph from exile amid a shouting multitude and a forest of brandished swords over roads strewn with flowers and through streets hung with tapestry, while the fountains ran wine and all the bells of London rang for joy. And it was on the 6th of July that he began to touch for the king's evil. 
Charles II, touching for the king's evil, scrofula. The ceremony is thus described by Evelyn, who may have witnessed it. His majesty being first to touch for your evil, according to custom, thus. His matey, sitting under his state in the banqueting house. The surgeons cause the sick to be brought or led up to the throne, where they, kneeling, your king strokes their faces or cheeks with both hands at once, at which instant a chaplain in his formality says, he put his hands upon them and he healed them. This he said to every one in particular. When they had been all touched, they came up again in the same order, and the other chaplain kneeling and having angel gold strung on white ribbon on his arm, delivers them one by one to his matey, who puts them about the necks of the touched as they pass, whilst the first chaplain repeats, That is ye true light which came into your world. Then follows an epistle, as our first of gospel, from the liturgy, prays for the sick with some alteration, lastly your blessing, and then the low chamberlain and the comptroller of the household bring a basin, or a towel, for his majesty to wash. Pepys witnessed the same ceremony at the same place on the 13th of April in the following year, and he's recorded his opinion that it was an ugly office and a symbol. It is said that in the course of his reign, Charles II touched near a 100,000 persons for scrofula. The press to get near him was sometimes terrific. On one occasion, six or seven of those who came to be healed were trampled to death, while the hope of a miraculous cure attracted the pious and sanguine. The certainty of receiving angel gold attracted the needy and avacious, and it was not always easy for the royal surgeons to distinguish between the motives of the applicants. This solemn mummery cost the state little less than £10,000 a year. The cool-headed William III contentiously refused to let himself to the hocus-pocus, and when his palace was besieged by the usual unsavoury crowd, he ordered them to be turned away with a doll. On the only occasion when he was importuned into laying his hand on a patient, he said to him, God give you better health and more sense. However, the practice was continued, as might have been expected, by the dull bigot James II and his dull daughter Queen Anne. In his childhood, Dr. Johnson was touched for scrofula by the Queen, and he always retained a faint, but solemn recollection of her as of a lady in diamonds with a long black hood. To judge by the too faithful picture which his biographer has drawn of the doctor's appearance in later life, we may conclude that the touch of the Queen's hand was not a perfect remedy for the disorder. Perhaps the stream of divine grace which had flowed so copiously in the veins of Charles II had been dried up by the interposition of the sceptical William. Other kings and chiefs have claimed to heal diseases by a touch. The king of France also claimed to possess the same gift of healing by touch, which they are said to have derived from Clovis or from St. Louis, while our English claims inherited it from Edward the Confessor. We may suspect that these estimates of the antiquity of the gift were far too modest, and that the barbarous, nay, savage predecessors, both of the Saxon and of the Merovingian kings, had with the same justice claimed the same powers many ages before. Down to the 19th century, the West African tribe of the Wallows in Senegal ascribed to their royal family a like power of healing by touch. Mothers have been seen to bring their sick children to the queen, who touched them solemnly with her foot on the back, the stomach, the head and the legs, at which the women departed in peace, convinced that their children had been made whole. Similarly, the savage chiefs of Tonga are believed to heal scrofula and cases of indurated liver by the touch of their feet, and the cure was strictly homeopathic for disease as well as the cure was thought to be caused by contact with a royal person or with anything that belonged to it. The fact royal personages in the Pacific and elsewhere have been supposed to live in a sort of atmosphere highly charged with what we may call spiritual electricity, 
which if it blasts all who intrude into its charmed circle has happily also the gift of making them whole again by a touch we may conjecture that similar views prevailed in ancient times as to the predecessors of our english monarchs and that accordingly scrofula received its name of the king's evil from the belief that it was caused as well as cured by contact with the king in loango pulsius called the king's disease because the negroes imagined it to be heaven's punishment for treason mediated against the king on the whole kings seem to have been often evolved out of magicians but in course of time to have exchanged magical for religious functions in other words to have become priests instead of sorcerers on the whole then we seem to be justified in inferring that in many parts of the world the king is the lineal successor of the old magician or medicine man when once a special class of sorcerers has been segregated from the community and entrusted by it with the discharge of duties on which the public safety and welfare are believed to depend these men gradually rise to wealth and power till their leaders blossom out into sacred kings but the great social revolution which thus begins with democracy and ends in despotism is attended by an intellectual revolution which affects both the conception and the functions of royalty for as time goes on the fallacy of magic becomes more and more apparent to the acuter minds and is slowly displaced by religion in other words the magician gives way to the priest who renouncing the attempt to control directly the processes of nature for the good of man seeks to attain the same end indirectly by appealing to the gods and to do for him what he no longer fancies he can do for himself hence the king starting as a magician tends greatly to exchange the practice of magic for the priestly functions of prayer and sacrifice and while the distinction between the human and the divine is still imperfectly drawn it is often imagined that men made themselves attain to godhead not merely after their death but in their lifetime through the temporary or permanent possession of their whole nature by a great and powerful spirit no class of the community has benefited so much as kings by this belief in the possible incarnation of a god in human form the doctrine of that incarnation and with it the theory of the divinity of kings in the strict sense of the world will form the subject of the following chapter end of section fourteen